morning, everyone. I was uh, looking at my clock this morning, realizing that next Sunday the service will be in the dark. Time change, so it's, it's going to be... Okay, you're going to have to do better than that. I just. All right, there you go. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff's back. I'm going to be relying on Jeff today. My wife over here. Anyway, I'm going to need a cheering section or I'm not going to be able to get through this. So today we're talking about how to live like a son. This whole series has been called Like a Son. We've addressed the orphan. said orphans got to come home. We've looked at the slave heart and realized that the slave heart's got to enter the party. Last week we talked about the father and we looked at six characteristics of what the father was actually like. And I hope uh, you had time to think about it this week and I hope it just blew a gasket in your mind. Well, today we're going to deal with what it is actually like to live like a son, okay? So I'm going to start in a really scary place, but it'll be all right. You trust me? Some of you do. And so good, I'll take what I can get, to be honest with you. So I'm going to read this passage that's brutal. And I want to, you got to face your fears and walk through them. Freedom is on the other side of scary things often. And so I want to look first at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And here's why I want to look at it. I want you to understand that what I'm not, ta- I'm not talking about just religion. I'm not talking about just living in, in some um, way, spiritual way that is somehow divorced from the natural world. I'm talking about living out a practical righteousness. So I want to look at one of the hardest texts, one of the hard ones I believe, there, there are others, in Corinthians. I just want to read it to you, okay? Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay? I call that one of those scary passages. Verse 11, he goes on and says, Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by, the calling, by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, I just read that text, and I don't know what your heart just did with it. Okay, Some people read it and go, Oh good, I got ammunition for this person in my life. And that's not what should have happened at all. What should have happened is we all should have realized that we are all nailed by that text. Nobody gets a free pass. You may not struggle with the sexual sins on, in the first portion, but you may struggle with greed and cheating and abuse and those things in your life. Okay. Now here's the thing. There's a, there's a version of Christianity floating around that basically discards those kinds of verses. That just says, well, none of that stuff matters. But I'm here to say that it actually does. This is really important. And so when Paul reads this, it nails us all to the wall. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 8, just to confirm it, if we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Now, this verse is true. Some people get a little excited about it, overly so, and in their pride use these kinds of scriptures to beat people up. And that's not right because that's pride. What these kinds of scriptures should do is humble us. To realize that we have been given an amazing gift through Jesus Christ. Okay? So, hard truth. The Bible has a lot of hard truth. And our opponents read those hard truths and they find distaste for the Word of God. They find distaste for God Himself. And so, for me, 
I, uh, I've moved in this place, and, and, and my understanding, the reason that the church is called ordinary faith, the reason I talk about an ordinary faith is that an ordinary faith has helped me find a balance, nah, balance isn't the right word, has helped me find a tension between hard truth and radical grace. There is hard truth in the scripture, but just because it's there doesn't mean we can beat people up with it. And if I could just give you a warning, what I find most often is that someone is walking a, a, an unhealthy and a sinful pathway in life, and Jesus will reveal himself to them and they will awaken. And it's like as soon as the enemy sees that, the first thing he does is he dispatches a demon, the spirit of religion, this, this, this false religious spirit. And then, I've seen it time and time again, all of a sudden, they walked in this course of life for years and, and did not like the things of God, and now all of a sudden they're trying to cram the things of God down all their friend's throat, rather than working from a place of grace and mercy. They work from a place of judgment, and, and that's not healthy. In fact, a verse that's really helped me and challenged me is in Timothy. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, a servant of the Lord must not quarrel. There are entire churches and denominations built on quarreling, but I won't go into that, okay? So, <laughs> a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but must be kind to everyone, be able to teach, be patient with difficult people. That's a whole sermon right there. <laughs> gently, gently, everybody say gently. gently. Instruct those who oppose the truth. Perhaps God will change those people's hearts. And they will learn the truth. This is how Paul's teaching Timothy how to do ministry. That hard truth, he says, to approach from a place of gentleness and patience, which are our two favorite things, right? Okay, all right, maybe not, all right? So grace, radical grace. What's so radical about grace? Well, grace is radical that it forgives past sins, first of all. The Bible says in Romans 5.20, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. That's the purpose of the law. That's what Paul's teaching us. The purpose of the law was to, to, to show sinfulness, not to make someone righteous. Not to say that if you can obey all these rules, you get to go to heaven. The purpose of the law was to display the sinfulness of mankind. But there's a big but in the verse. And God has these throughout Scripture, these hard truths, and he puts this, this connecting, this conjunction in here, but that transitions into radical grace. So, so we can see how sinful they are, but as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So yes, grace is radical for our past sins, but that's not all it is. And if your view of grace and God's grace is basically just a view of forgiveness, you're missing most of what grace is. Grace, if grace is only undeserved favor, Jesus never had any. Because he deserved favor, right? Grace has to be more than that. Because he was a man filled with grace and truth. Radical grace and hard truth. And we see it through his teaching. So grace forgives the past, but it also empowers something. So the Bible says in Romans 5, 17, same chapter, going down the Paul's thought thread, he says, for the sin of this one man, Adam, I just combined man and Adam and made him madam. Cool. <laughs> and it caused death to rule over many. But even greater, 
even greater than Adam's sin, is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. Say gift. Gift of righteousness. Can you earn a gift? Yes or no? No. Can't earn a gift. Has to be given. God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. Listen to this last phrase. Because this nails to the wall, this idea that I can live in sin and still stand okay before God. Because grace isn't given to us just to wash our sins away. It's also given to us as an empowerment over sin in our life. For all who receive the gift of righteousness and the wonderful grace, for all who receive it, will live, will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Will live in triumph. Do you get it? That means if there is sin in our life that's defeating us, we're missing something of the power of grace in that life. And it's not okay. And this walking around saying, well, I'm just a saved sinner, is a bunch of hooey. You didn't know what I was going to say at that last word, did you? You're like, I don't know, what's he going to say? Hooey. You can say that in churches. There's a list of Christianized, naughty words you can use in church, and hooey is one of those. So this grace declares you legally righteous, and then, it imp- and then it practically empowers you to live right before God. That's grace. Does that make sense? This is really important. Because I'm not asking you, at the end of this message, to go out in the world and live defeated. I'm actually asking you to go out and live in triumph. To have victory over all the problems in your life, all the failures in your life. That's what living like a son is about. And none of us are good at it yet but that's okay. God will teach us what it is to live like his son. So legally, you're justified by grace, and practically, you're sanctified by grace. Does that make sense? Sir, I I use big church words. Justification, sanctification, you're all impressed now, right? Okay, an ordinary faith. They didn't look impressed, huh? For me, an ordinary faith is how I came to understand the tension between the God, the epistle of James and the epistle to Galatians where I find these two letters seemingly co- not, not contradicting each other but rather in, like paradoxes to each other and now I see through God's amazing grace that we live in this tension between those two books and if you're sitting there and you don't know what I'm talking about that's okay they're in a Bible you can get a hold of one today on the back shelf read that for yourself just some amazing things, okay? So let's move into this concept of sonship. And I think I have a verse I want to read before we go, just to, before we move in. So 2 Peter 1, 3 through 5. By his divine power, God has given us everything. Say everything. everything. I'm just trying to keep you in the room here, okay? Given us everything we need for living a godly life. Do you have everything you need for living a godly life? Yes, yes that's the right answer. Yes. Let's try it one more time. Do you have everything you need for living a godly life? Word of God says so. God's word is truth, okay? God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all this by coming to know him. So knowing God and receiving these things are tied together. The one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence, and because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. So Christians do not live by circumstance, 
We do not live by the headlines in the newspaper or the balance in the bank account. We live by the promises of God. Do you understand? It doesn't matter if your bank account is in the negatives. God says you have everything you need in Christ. Okay? So there's a bank account that matters that's overflowing. Does that make sense? God is Lord, Jesus is Lord, over all the situations in your life. So we live by promises, not by circumstances. Okay? As we move into what it's like to live as a son of God, we have to transition our minds out of circumstance, the raging storms of life, into that of promise. God says this, I believe God, I'm going to wait on God's promise to show up in my life. Does that make sense? This is where we start. Today I really only have two points, but don't worry, I have stretched it into an hour sermon because I can... I can do that, okay? <clears throat> so Peter finishes up that, says, in that passage and says, In view of all this, make every effort to respond to God's promises. So we see that we're living by promise. We're responding to those promises. There's two things that the Son has that we need to understand today. We're starting on grace. We built the foundation of grace, both legal and practical. And now we understand we're going to grow in how to live as a son. So there's two things a son has that you and I have to learn. The first is acceptance. We need to learn that we are accepted. Accepted is a power, a powerful thing in your life. This isn't just a, a knowledge, oh, I'm accepted by God. It's way more than that. I'm going to show it to you. Because we're going to look at the son who taught us how to be sons, Jesus Christ. Because the first thing Jesus was on this earth, first primary thing he was, was the son of God. Read the Gospels. You'll see he called himself that. People called him that. Now, when we, we refer back a little bit to Luke 15, I'll show you a few passages out of it. We've read it through the last few weeks, so I'm not going to go back and read the chapter or the parable. But I just want to recall the orphan and the slave for just a minute and see what they did with their acceptance. Because the, the orphan son, the prodigal son as we know him, but I call it the, the orphan spirit, he denied his acceptance. Not only did he deny his acceptance by the Father, he literally ran away from the acceptance he had from his Father. It says in verse 13 of Luke 15, it says, A few days later, the younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So the, the orphan son rejected it. He didn't want the acceptance. He, he lied to himself, so he didn't need it. I'm fine on my own. I don't need anybody but me. In fact, other people need me, and I don't need anyone. That's a lie. That's not true. We all need acceptance, and the father offered this son, this orphan son, acceptance, but the son didn't want it because the, and the son, I mean, the orphan would like look at 1 Corinthians and read that passage I just read to you, that hard truth would look at that and go, the father is harsh. The father will never understand. Sounds like teenage rebellion because that is the spirit behind that kind of rebellion in life. So the orphan rejects it and rather thinks of the father in a way that is not who the father is. Imagines the father incorrectly because he needs acceptance he, he, and denies that he even needs it. And so he lives under a sentence of rejection. The problem with this is that sooner or later, what God gave you runs out when you run from the father. That's what happened with the prodigal. The father gave him these resources, 
Lots of resources. The party went on for a long time, one translation says. But eventually it runs out. And that's what happens to us. We get distance from God, and what God has given you will last a while, maybe years. And sometimes you're just out there doing life your way, your boss of your life. It's all about you, but sooner or later, reality shows up. Ten foot tall and bulletproof eventually goes away, and you realize, I'm just a child. I'm just an orphan without a father. You can't deny it for long. Sooner or later, it comes back to haunt you. The orphan son rejected his need for acceptance. The slave son tried to earn the acceptance he'd been given. The Bible says in Luke 15, 29, the, slave, uh, the older brother replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me to, and in all that time you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Notice how he's connecting earning it. I slaved for you. I deserved, which means I earned, and you never gave. That wasn't true at all. The, the slave heart is always trying to earn from the father what the father wants to give. Where in the orphan heart, they're separated by distance. The orphan runs away. The slave heart is in the household, but they're separated by mission. Because the slave heart's like, I, I, I want what I want. I want control of the household. I want to make the decisions. I don't want to, the father's mission. I don't want to expand the father's business, but rather mine. And so they're separated by mission, one by, uh, one by distance, one by mission. Either way, they both end up rejection, rejecting God's, the Father's acceptance. The orphan pretends he doesn't need it. The slave somehow thinks he can earn a gift. Somehow he thinks, I deserve acceptance. But if you deserve a gift, it's not a gift. So, this is the two sons. What's the son? Because we learn to be a son from the son. What does he do with acceptance? Jesus embraced it. I mean, he, I hate to say it, he passionately embraced. He was, he was happy, thrilled to be a son of God. Think about this. John 17, 3 through 5. This is the way to have eternal life. To know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. And then he goes on to say, I brought glory to you here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into your, the glory we shared before the world began. You see, Jesus came, and he embraced his acceptance. And along with embracing the acceptance, he embraced the Father's mission. Where the slave was on his own mission... And the orphan was kind of on his own mission. We'll talk about that in a minute. This, this, the son of God is happy, pleased. He enjoys the acceptance of his father. He, he, there is joy that he finds, glory he finds in the acceptance of the father. Think about that. Let that soak in a minute, the joy that Jesus experienced just from the simple truth and reality that he experienced in several ways of being accepted by the father. Okay, we'll talk more about it and try and make that practical in just a minute. But there should be joy in what we do. 
especially for the Father. In fact, it's been my experience that if people in, don't enjoy serving the Father, they, they won't do it long, but it'll seem like forever, right? You ever had to do a job you didn't want to do? You're like, well, if it isn't worth doing, it's worth doing half well, that kind of attitude. So, oh, I, I didn't mean, that wasn't a jab or anything. It was how I do things. But anyway, so, <laughs> so there was joy. He embraced it. There was also a sense, and I know this is a strong word for what I'm about to deliver, but I, I think it's correct. There was a sense in which not only did Jesus embrace it, but there's a sense in which he enforced his acceptance. That he, it, it gave him so much confidence that it made him a force to be reckoned with. Jesus was so accepted within that no amount of rejection on the outside mattered to him. How would you like to have that much acceptance? How would you like to feel and enjoy and embrace so much acceptance from God your Father that it, mattered, it did not matter who rejected you any longer because you knew in your heart you were accepted. That's exactly what made Jesus this force to be reckoned with. Look at this passage in John 10. You, you know most of it. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. You know that part. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one can snatch them away from me. Can anyone get you out of Jesus' hands? I just Pop quiz. Okay, you pass. Good job. Way to go. For my Father has given them to me, and he's more powerful than anyone else. No one can snatch them from the Father's hand. The Father and I are one. I'm so accepted that me and Papa are one together. This is his acceptance. Now, <clears throat> what happens? Okay, when Jesus stands up and basically says, I'm so accepted, I can accept all of you. That's kind of what he's saying. I can bring you into my, I can hold you with my hands. Nothing can take you away. That's how accepted I am. How do the people react? It was beautiful. No, it wasn't. Verse 31. Once again, because we are 10 chapters into John at this point, and Jesus, he was the first rock star. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. That's the rock star reference. It wasn't that funny. I'm sorry. Jesus said, at my father's direction, I've done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? And they replied, we're stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. Blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. In his acceptance, Jesus did not need their acceptance. Does that understand? You can't reject me because you didn't accept me to start with. Does that make sense? And so this is why acceptance is so important. It becomes a force in your life. It becomes a, a confidence that you can stand and glorify your Father without fear of repercussion because of the acceptance within. That's how Stephen was able to be stoned because he was so accepted that in the glory of God, so shining on his face, they couldn't kill the acceptance in him. As he's dying, he's just forgiving them and loving them. The same with Jesus Christ. That's who Stephen learned it from. This is the power of acceptance because these lives we live in insecurity, guys. Walking around afraid that we're not accepted within. They're making us weak and cowardly. And the world does not need a weak, cowardly, scared faith. It needs a bold one that works every ordinary day of your life. That is like, I am so accepted by my Father, I don't care what you do to me. I will still accept you. You can try and block, block me out, but I will circle you in because I ain't scared because I'm accepted. That makes sense? Is that resting? All right. So Jesus Christ didn't just 
embrace it. He didn't just like enforce it or stand in it, but he also invested it. It's like he poured his acceptance into people. <clears throat> Jesus prays, John 17, now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. Back to that gift concept. For I have passed on to them the message you gave me. They accepted it. And know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. Jesus was so accepted that he could pour acceptance on other people, and they would accept. Powerful ideas, how he poured these things into you. All of these as gifts. All of these as gifts. If we could get the earn it out of our head, we could start living in our gifts and promises. I'm going to say that again. If we could get the earn it out of our head, we could start living in the gifts and promises. Seriously, how could you earn anything this good? How long would you have to work? How many dollars would you have to earn? How many, how many services to Jesus would you have to do to earn something as good as God's grace, salvation, and sanctification? It's an absurd logic. It's, not, it's just not possible to earn a gift that good. But you can receive a gift that's that good. In fact, Paul writes again, and all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And listen to this last verse, because part of the verse, we're going to come back to it later, but I just need you to remember it. Stow it, like put a pen in it. Stick it up in your brain. Don't hurt yourself. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to him. This gift of acceptance is a gift that we are charged with giving others. And here's the thing about giving something to someone else. You can only give people what you possess. I mean, I would love to give people Steve's stuff. It would be cheaper for me. You know? You can only give what you possess. And so, so many are walking through life under a spirit of rejection, a stronghold that Satan has built in their mind, lies of circumstances that he's used to create this fort in their heads that they're never going to be accepted by anyone, and it's a lie. And here's the problem. I will teach you acceptance right now. Put it in your head, but if it does not travel to your heart, if somehow this does not sink down to here, if some revelation, some awareness does not take this thought of I am accepted by my Father and plant it right here, you will continue to live your life under a sense and spirit of rejection. Because the lie is powerful and it's reinforced every single day by each and every rejection you experience. You, every, every job loss, every time you lose money, every time you fail, you're not accepted. You're a failure. These lies come. And here's the Father saying, here's my promise. It's a gift of my grace. I accept you. You cannot earn it. Amen? Thank you. Amen. That's a good word. It's God's word, not mine. So, got acceptance. You got it down? Totally got it. You walk out of here today, never feel rejected again, right? Okay, it's a process. It's a process. Second thing you have, authority. And I think this is one of the things we're so confused about, is authority and its role in the Christian's life today. And so I'm going to try and help with that. Again, if you want to learn to live like a son, you look at the son. Remember that. How did the son live? Which, by the way, means that you spend time in the Gospels. It's important to read the Gospels. 
So many people just spend all their time in the letters of Paul, and the failure in that, or the thing that you will miss in that, is that Paul is interpreting and revealing what God has revealed to him about Jesus. If you're ever going to have revelation about Jesus, you've got to read about Jesus yourself. Does that make sense? Read the stories of Jesus. Okay, so the son has authority. The orphan had authority, the prodigal son. What did he do with it? He totally abused it. It's all about me, all about I. He just walked out and put all of his authority into his world. I'm going to make my world the best world that I can make it. How did that turn out? When he invested the authority and the gifts that the father gave to him in himself, it was a great party, but it was only his party. And when the party was over, there was no family left. There was no one else to care because it was driven by him. And so he abused his authority. Now, the slave son neglected his authority, and I, I don't know which one's worse. Either way, we got two lost sons. No, no, one's in the house, one's out in the, this, the pig pen, but either way, we got two lost sons. But the, the slave son never used it, never threw his own party, never had his friends over, never killed a fatted calf. All of that was within his authority to do as the son of the father, and yet he never did it. And in fact, he blamed the father for him never doing it. And I'm, as I'm reading that the story, I'm like, how does... What? How does that work? And then, then I got it. Through all, through, believe it or not, the, the amazing theologian, Stan Lee. Oh, wrong audience. <laughs> Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. You see, the slave son was afraid of his authority. Because you, when you use authority, you're responsible for how you use it. And you're responsible for the consequences of it. Look at the prodigal son. He used the authority and abused it all upon himself. What happened? Ended up in a pig pen all alone. So whether you abuse it or neglect it, the problem is the same. You don't know anything about authority. And you don't understand how it works in your life. And you don't understand its purpose in your life. I look at these two sons, and I, and I have this picture in my brain as I kind of transpose that upon the world I live in today. And I go a little nuts. Never in history has Christianity has had more opportunities to reach out in the world. There have never been more Christian books in print, more Christian videos circulating the globe. You can virtually, and I mean virtual like virtual reality, you can virtually be anywhere in the world in seconds. We have more available to us than we have ever had before. And, and some people are trying to use those things, no doubt. But rather than rejoice in what's available to us, we gripe in how the enemy is using those things. You know, the, the enemy is using the, the internet. The enemy is using social media, all those kind of things. Well, what about the church? What about you and me? What about followers of Christ who have real authority? It's, we're kind of like the, the, the prodigal. We're either using it for ourselves or we're like the slave. We're afraid to use it. Because we're afraid to use it because we get out that we're, because of our acceptance. We're afraid to use our authority because we don't want to be rejected by people who never accepted us. We're afraid to use our authority because we are afraid of being rejected by people who never accepted us. Isn't that absurd? That's a fear that's in our heart. Where do you think it comes from? Because God hasn't given us a spirit of fear. I'll tell you who's scared. Would you like to know who's scared? Satan. 
Every day he gets more and more desperate. Why? Because every day he gets closer and closer to his destination. Every day his resources, his bank account goes down while the Father's continually increases and increases and increases. He's getting more terrified every day. That's what you're seeing in the world. That's the fear you're seeing. It's not, yes, it's the fear of people, but it's the fear of the prince of darkness behind them who is terrified of the next reality that he faces. Remember this. This is important and very powerful. So a son has authority. By the way, you want to change the world? I think, there's, I think there is a way to change the world, and it's called the gospel. And here's why I think this. I don't, I think, um, I don't think the world will ever have enough money to make it a good place. In fact, I think the more money it has, the worse it's going to get. But maybe I'm crazy. I don't think you're going to fix enough social problems. I don't think any of this. I think the root problem in the world today isn't money, government, socialism, capitalism, or whatever's in between. I think the root problem is hearts of men. I just... I think it's the hearts of people. And I only know of one nuclear option to deal with the hearts of people, and that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, there's my sermon on the gospel. What did Jesus do with his authority? And the answer to that is pretty much everything. He, everything he did, he did from a place of authority. Think of this. He was at rest in his acceptance, and he worked from his authority, in his authority so to speak. <clears throat> we read, if as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus taught from authority. Matthew 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished saying these things, these things being the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his, te at his teaching. They were amazed. Why? Because he was an eloquent speaker? No, for he taught with real authority, quite unlike the teachers of religious law. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus praised faith that understood authority. I love the story in Matthew 8, just a little bit after the Sermon on the Mount, the story of the Roman officer who needed a servant healed, and he tells Jesus, hey, I'm a guy under authority just like you, and I tell someone to go, and they go, tell someone to come, they come. If you will just say from where you are that my servant's healed, I know it'll be done. And Jesus was impressed. This guy wasn't a Jew, wasn't a Pharisee, wasn't a follower specifically. He was just a Roman officer who understood that Jesus worked from a place of authority and that his power came from authority. This is so important. And so verse 8, verse 10 of verse, uh, Matthew 8, Jesus says when Jesus heard this, he was amazed. Jesus was amazed. Boom. Turning to those who were following me, he said, I tell you the truth, I haven't seen faith like this in all of Israel. Jesus was impressed by people who understood authority and whose faith was based on authority. Jesus forgave sins by authority, Matthew 9, 6. Forgave sins by authority. Jesus' resurrection power came from his authority, John 10, 16. It's all based on authority. Why? Because authority is what directs power. The power was in the Father. And in the Father, Jesus directed from the Father into these situations. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. And he gives eternal life to each one you have given him. Jesus exercised his authority. And this is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Sorry, I just love to read that verse. <coughs> Excuse me. So Jesus exercised all of this authority. So, what's the point? We've talked about grace. 
trying to lay as a foundation, trying to make it bigger than for your past, but to make it for your now and your future. We've talked about acceptance, how important it is that we not just know we're accepted, but that we know it, that it's revealed to us. We talked about authority, and we saw just briefly how it's been abused, neglected, and then how Jesus operated from a place of authority. So what does this mean for us? So, a couple things I want to teach you to do. First, learn to rest in the Father's acceptance. Have to rest. If you're going to strive for God, strive to enter his rest, Hebrews 4, okay? If you're going to work hard, work hard to enter rest in the place of the Father's acceptance. How do you do that? I'll tell you two things that have helped us a lot that you hear me talk about all the time. And the reason we talk about them, they're not magic bullets. They're just foundational, like, pillars for your life. And the two things I would recommend are prayer and worship. If you struggle praying, it's a sign that you're struggling with acceptance. You hear me? If you struggle in prayer, it's a sign that you struggle with the Father's acceptance of you. It, it means that you don't enjoy this time with the Father. And so what needs to be dealt with? Strive to enter that place of rest. Strive to enter this place of acceptance. Because if acceptance by Papa doesn't blow you away, you don't get it yet. Do you understand? If, if you don't realize how miraculous and amazing it is that the holy, perfect, sinless God of the universe has accepted you, you don't understand. So prayer brings us into that place of acceptance. This is why the writer of Hebrews writes, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will, have, we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. So I think prayer, I think worship's really important. If we struggle with worship, it's an acceptance struggle. What is worship? Actually, we're going to teach on it in a couple of weeks. Worship isn't singing. I mean, I love singing. I worship when I'm singing. I think our worship team does a great job with the music that we do and in leading the service and, and, and scriptures and all these things. But worship isn't singing. Worship is awareness. There's a lot of things I could say worship is. But for this, let me say worship is awareness. God is here. I am in his presence. I am not just at the Young and Heart Senior Center, 2400 Reagan Avenue. I am in the throne room right now, enjoying and embracing my Father's acceptance of me. You start thinking like that, and you're going to worship a little different. And by the way, I don't care what it looks like, as long as you're aware of the Father. I want, that, that's the freedom that you need to have as you enter into that. And that, you start praying, you start worshiping, and in that prayer and worship, you ask Father, Father, teach me. Reveal to me the acceptance that is mine in Christ. And you know what God will do? He will answer that prayer. He will show you. He will reveal himself to you. You will get to a place, you can get to a place where you can literally feel the acceptance of the Father. Am I asking you to live an emotionally led life? No. I'm asking you to get in touch with the emotions God gave you, though, that emotions he gave that are in his image so that you might connect with him. This is important. And so this is a place of rest, a place to enjoy it. You and Papa together, that's what he wants. So rest in his acceptance. Work from his authority. Work from his authority. If the mission is to glorify God, lift Christ up, reconcile people to the Father, then the mission is accomplished by the authority granted to us in and from Christ.
that make sense? You see, the Father is the authority. It all resides in the, in the Father. And he grants that authority to expand his rule and reign, to expand his kingdom. You can't do anything from you. You start trying to operate in the kingdom from your strength. You're going to get frustrated. This has to come from a place of authority and power. It has to come from him. Okay? So start to pray. Get that prayer life. Get used to spending time with Father, talking to Father, those drives to work, those long trips. Don't just, hey, audio books are great, but make sure you petition some time out with the Father and spend time in prayer. Then, here's how to live from authority. I'm going to give you Jesus' words on it. It's pretty crazy. You ready? You ready for some crazy? I got to get done here pretty quick, so I got to go crazy quick. My wife says, you can't go crazy, Michael, because you're already there. Matthew 11, 22. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. Listen to this. You can say to this mountain, say mountain. mountain. Who are you speaking to? The mountain. Let this sink in. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown in the sea, and it will happen. But you must really believe it, and it will happen, and have, you must believe it will happen, and have no doubt in your heart. So start with prayer and then start to speak. What am I telling you to do? How did Jesus heal? Do we ever see Jesus go, Father in heaven, please open this blind man's eyes. Do we ever see Jesus say, Father in heaven, please bring Lazarus out of the tomb? No. We do not see Jesus speaking to the Father, asking the Father to use his power. We see Jesus speaking out of his authority to direct the power, okay? And so when he says, speak to the mountain, he's teaching us to speak to the problem, okay? What we do is we pray about our problems. Now, what we need to learn to do is, stand, is rest in our acceptance and work out of our authority and start speaking to the problem. Jesus saw blind eyes. He told the blind eyes to open. He saw a leper. He told the leper to be clean. He saw a tree that... Uh, was a great what parable he said uh, he cursed it and it withered he spoke to the tree he commanded demons to come out and he came out he didn't ask god to do these things he didn't ask the father to do these things he did these things out of his authority it was the father's power but his authority well how we're doing church today how we're doing christianity today is we're like the police officer running down to the courtroom going to the judge going man judge it's so bad out there there are criminals they're hurting people they're selling drugs you gotta do something and the judge is going get them in here man you have the authority you bring them in here for the with your authority and i will change them or punish them or pay their price by my power does this make sense now how this authority and power work together? If you start speaking to your problems out of a place of acceptance, you're going to be surprised at how often your problems start listening. Now, I know you're sitting there going, ah, I don't think it'll work. It's okay. There are times that you're going to obey God, come out of acceptance, speak to a problem, and nothing's going to change. And there could be a lot of things going on. First of all, there could certainly be sin in your life. And God wants to deal with that first. God always wants to deal with anything that's out of line of the kingdom. And maybe also that the Father wants to teach you some things. And he wants you to grow into the authority. 
I mean, after all, they don't just let a, a young police officer out there on his own. They give him a mentor and start working with him. There's things that you may need to know. You may need revelation. Regardless of what you need, and there could be a lot of things, regardless of what you need, we need to start stepping out in faith. We need to have so much peace from our acceptance of the Father that we step out onto raging storms and they calm down. Have you ever wondered how Jesus calmed the storm? I'll tell you how. He had so much peace within that he just expressed it on that storm. He enforced his acceptance on a raging sea. And who did he speak to, by the way? Did he speak to the storm or the Father? He spoke to the storm. This is a powerful teaching. And I realize it may take time to grow into it. We all have a lot to learn. But this is what it is to live like a son. It's learn, learning to live in your acceptance. And it's learning to live in Christ's authority that he's put in you. Does that make sense? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. There are truths in your word that are too marvelous for me. And this is one of them. It's beyond me. It's one that I am just learning. But I'm so excited. I'm so excited about what's possible because of the power of God working through God's people. Every day, I get a better picture of just how terrified the enemy is of us as we begin to realize the power that is available to us through the authority that Christ has planted in us. And so I ask, Lord, that you awaken our hearts. Help us to dream big. Help us to live like sons, ready to expand the Father's business, ready to, ex to reconcile the world back to Dad, ready to give the gift in every way we can that we have received a gift of acceptance, a gift of love, a gift of power. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for blowing our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.